Christ who lives within me, Christ who lives within me, thank God for that. It's from the beginning to this, we pour it out today, because you deserve the glory, you deserve the, can we lift this up as a battle cry from the church? Yeah. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me, Christ who lives for he's alive church hallelujah we're alive because he's alive thank you jesus yes yes father we're alive because you're alive we thank you for your presence we thank you for your word in the book of psalms it says this praise the lord my soul all my inmost being praise his holy name it's what we came to do and as we sing this new song today would you praise him with a heart of reverence? For he is our king. He is our Lord. He is our savior. We praise the one most worthy. Yes, you're worthy, Jesus. He gave your life for mine. Nailed to the cross, you crucified. All my sin and shame, it was washed by your mercy. Yes, it was. You are the treasure I find, my reason for living. So let my life become an offering to the one who is worthy. Yes, we pour out all praise. All praise to the Lord Most High. All praise to the One who saved my life. All praise to Jesus Christ, High King of Heaven, my King forever. We look to our King now. You stormed the gates of my heart The veil in between was torn apart Now you hold the keys to the grave Can we lift this up today? So you bring things to life You roll stones away All praise to the Lord Most High All praise to the One who saved my King of heaven, my King forever. All praise to the Lord Most High. 
my King forever. Yes, it's who you are, Lord over all. Yes, my soul longs for you, Jesus. We approach and surrender. We approach and surrender. Would you sing these words today and surrender before a perfect God? I lift my hands up, lay my whole life down, my whole life down before you. I lift my hands up, lay my whole life down, my whole life now is for you, yes. I lift my hands up, lay my whole life down, my whole life down before you. I live my hands up, lay my whole life down. My we commit to you, Jesus. We lay it all down. I live my hands up, lay my whole life down. My whole life down before you. I live my hands up, lay my whole life down. My whole life down is for you. our rescuer, our redeemer. This is who you are, our king. Your promises are true. You are always faithful. You're a good father. We praise you. Yes, he's faithful. God of Abraham, you're the God of covenant, of faithful promises. Time and time again, you have proven you do just what you say. Though the storms may come and the winds may blow, I'll remain steadfast. And let my heart learn when you speak a word, it will come to How would you tell him this today? Great is your faithfulness to me. Amen. Great is your faithfulness. Sun to the setting, same I will praise, I will praise you. your 
King for everything great is your faithfulness to me. Yeah, let me not forget in my times of doubting and my wandering, you remain faithful, Jesus. Yes, God, it's from me to be. God remains your age, though the earth may pass away, your word remains the same, yeah. Your history can prove, there's nothing you can do, you're faithful and true. Though the storms may come and the winds may blow, I will remain steadfast. And let my heart learn when you speak the word, it will come to
every breath on our lips, every word from our lips, you are worthy. Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are faithful. Father, continue to remind us of your faithfulness in our times of doubting, in our times of wandering. Remind us that you are good. Whatever may come, you remain good. You remain faithful. That's just who you are. It's this God we praise. It's this God we worship. Not just for what you do, not just what you did for on the cross, but just for who you are. In your nature, a good God we praise him. So, Father, we worship you. As long as there's breath in our lips, your name will be praised. We proclaim the name of Jesus in this place, from wall to wall, from floor to ceiling. Be glorified, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, church. It's freeing to worship and surrender, to give it all to God, to lay it at his feet. It is in his hands. It's a good place to be today. Well, hey, welcome to second service here at MRCC. We're family here, so would you turn to those around you, make them feel like family this morning. Yeah! Well, good morning, friends, and welcome to Second Service here at MRCC. It's great to see you. It's great to be with you. Welcome to everybody who's joining us online during the live stream in Second Service. You're us. We're with you. It's good to have you with us. And, and listen, friends, uh, I want to do two things real quick. One is um, we need every now and then to stop and really appreciate the worship team that gets here at 5.30 in the morning and serves all the way till 12.30. Can we just thank and appreciate those people? Yeah, I pull into the parking lot about 5.45 on Sunday morning and I can already see cars over here and people here and, and I know they're going to be there all morning just because they want to serve, just they want to serve us and help us worship. So huge appreciation to them. We don't say it often enough. And that includes, by the way, all of our technical team that's in back running sound and lighting and all that kind of stuff. Uh, they're part of that group. They're here as well. Hey, God laid something on my heart this morning before we go any further, and it's something that involves us as a church. Um, the Holy Spirit wants to do something very specific here in this moment, and, and here's what it is. The Bible says he's a living God. He's, he's in our presence. He leads us. He inspires us to do things that maybe aren't on the agenda, maybe aren't on the schedule, and this is one of those. 
the Holy Spirit was whispering to me that there's someone here, maybe several someones, and, and you know, you're, you're right at the edge of, of making a scary decision. God is inviting you to take a step of faith, to trust his word more than your circumstances. I don't know what that has to do with, but God's inviting you to do that, and, and it's scary, and you're feeling that fear a little bit. I want you to know this, that all around you are people who have felt that same fear and have taken those same kinds of steps and have, maybe because they've just lived longer, they've had the opportunity to see God's faithfulness. And as we sang that song, Great is Thy Faithfulness to Me, my mind goes back over almost 60 years now, back 40 years to when Rhonda and I first believed and God invited us to take all these steps by faith and they were frightening, they were scary. We thought there was a lot at risk and we looked around and there were older saints who were ahead of us who'd already walked that path and, and their testimony gave us courage to take the same path. Maybe you're here this morning and you're facing a choice like that. Maybe God wants you to put an end to a relationship because it's, it's outside of his boundaries. And you know that, but it's scary. Maybe God's inviting you to take a step forward in, in, in moving from one job to another or in... Uh, opening yourself up to a vision that he's laid on your heart and you're thinking, ah, oh, that's scary, I don't know how. We're... Maybe you're just facing an empty pantry and you don't know what's next. God wants you to know that he will be faithful to you in that. And here's, here's how I want to invite us to help one another. In just a moment, I'm going to count to three. And if you're someone to whom God has repeatedly showed his faithfulness in scary moments... I want to invite you to stand up as a testimony to those who are still getting ready to make that choice. Those who are on the cusp of making that choice. You've done that. You've stepped out. Now you look back and you go, wow, God, I can't believe. Now, please, friends, we're all about being real here. So don't just stand up because everybody's standing up, okay? It's okay if you sit down, all right? It's okay if you don't stand. But among us are many who have experienced God's faithfulness in those scary moments. And so if you're here on the cusp of making that kind of a choice, making that kind of decision, we want to encourage you. So I'm just going to count to three, and those of us who look back and say, oh God, over and over and over again, you've proved your faithfulness to me. If that's you, I just want you to stand as an encouragement to those younger who are still to make that. Some of us are already going up. One, two, three. Would you stand and make that testimony? Yeah, 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 hallelujah. Celebrate God. Let's celebrate God. Stay standing for a moment. Now, friends, yeah, you can be seated, but friends, look around. If you're that person on the edge of that choice, all, all those folks who stood, they're just like you. They've been in those same kinds of moments, and they made that step, and they look back now and go, yeah, I'm glad I did. God was faithful. God was in that. So be encouraged. Be encouraged by that this morning as you get ready to take that next step. You know, we didn't plan that this morning, but the Holy Spirit, um, he's alive and in our midst and he interrupts us sometimes to speak to us. That's a good thing. Amen? Amen. 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 So receive that this morning. Uh, again, it's great to be with you. Uh, a few quick announcements this morning before we open God's word today. And, and the first one is this. Coming up this Friday and Saturday is the Nitro Kids Conference for elementary school kids. It's an overnight conference. Uh, happens here at Renton. They're going to be staying overnight here 
here in the church building. Um, if, if your grade school child would like to be involved, uh, please contact us right away. Uh, we're making final preparations for that. Your, your son, your daughter, your granddaughter, grandson, um, contact us. You can scan the code on the seat in front of you. You can go by the guest center. You can give the church office call, go online, whatever. But let us know. We'd love to include your kids in Nitro. It's a wonderful experience. Happens every spring, every fall. Uh, Pastor Allison and our kids' church team will be leading that. It's going to be fantastic. And, and as always, it, you know, if you go to sign up and you say, oh boy, that cost is a challenge for me. I don't know that, that we have the money to make that happen. Uh, just let us know. We're a family. We want to make sure your kids can go. And, and we'll work with you. We'll help you scholarship to make sure your kids get to go to Nitro. So that's coming up this Friday and Saturday. Uh, we'd love uh, for your kids to be involved again. Let us know if you need help. Also, uh, coming up on March 18th and 19th is Women's Conference. Um, we're going to have a special announcement about that next week. Hear a lot more about that. That's right around the corner. We're really thrilled about the men's conference that we're putting together in May. This year, it's going to be a local men's conference we're putting together through MRCC. Uh, Monday night at Band of Brothers, we had 91 guys out excited about that, looking forward to that. We've got a wonderful speaker, a, a, a professional guide coming over from Montana, wonderful brother who's going to be speaking to us. You'll hear more about that going forward, but men's conference is coming up as well. Uh, tomorrow night, ladies, is Sisters of Strength. That's our, our monthly ladies' dinner. It'll happen at 6.30 here in the sanctuary, no cost. Everybody's welcome as always, but that's tomorrow night, Sisters of Strength, so you're invited out for that. And then one last thing, and that is that I just, I, I want to thank you, thank us as a church for our tremendous faithfulness in giving. Ron and I have been reflecting this month that it was just about 15 years ago that the process that brought us here to, to be one of you uh, happened. And there were so many times in those 15 years when we wanted, we knew we needed more space, we knew we needed more room, and, and there were all these roadblocks and we couldn't get it done and the county wouldn't let us and so and so and blah, 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 all that stuff happened. Now all that's behind us. And we have a contractor, and they tell us that they're going to start building this thing on July 1st and be done by Thanksgiving. <laughs> and we're going to have this children's expansion just right here to the north of our sanctuary building. And, and if the parking lot is a battle, let me let you know that also during that phase one, we're going to have another entrance. It's going to come along the fence on the north side. Should be able to come in one and go out the other. Uh, that's going to make uh, circulating in the parking lot so much easier. And, and if you've been around for a while, we're going to pave over all the mud. There will be no more mud parking at MRCC. Somebody say amen. Yeah, that's a good thing. I remember when I first came to town and I was so worried about all the ladies having to park their vehicles in the mud and hike across on the platform. And somebody said, Pastor Greg, it's Edomclaw. The ladies go barefoot in the mud. It's not a big deal. So, you know, I was like, oh, okay. But we'll be able to put that behind us. So a lot of, a lot of great neat stuff. Thank you for your faithfulness. And you remember we said in December that this year we're inviting folks to make a special gift to the building of that kids' expansion. Uh, we're going to do everything debt-free, and we've already committed to that and have the wherewithal to do that. But you have an opportunity to make a special gift to that. There's a little card in the seat back in front of you if you'd like to. You can fill that card out, give it to us, drop it off, and uh, we'll contact you. Go online and do the same thing and uh, contact you about making a special gift uh, to the children's uh, building. So many people. People just since uh, Christmas when we announced that I've already jumped in, you have an opportunity to do that as well. No pressure, but we're not going to, if you're waiting for some big campaign where we sing and dance and put thermometers on the wall, it's not going to happen. <laughs> we're just going to talk to each other like family and, and do this together. So you have an opportunity to be a part of that. And one last thing as well, the development team is putting together for those of us uh, who are contractors and business people involved in construction, our development team is putting together a get-together when we can sort out how you might
might be able to contribute and be involved in the building. Uh, several uh, have approached us about that. So Larry and the development team is putting that together. You'll be hearing about that in the next couple of weeks. Uh, he'll be sharing about that. So good stuff, cool stuff, uh, really neat stuff. Thank you for it. Uh, turn in your Bible, if you would, to Romans chapter 4. Uh, if you haven't drifted off already, Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse 1 this morning. We're going to continue this journey all the way through the epistle to the Romans. Remember, we learned at the beginning that uh, this is a letter Paul wrote to a church he never visited, so he's going to explain the entire gospel. He's going to lay out everything he taught everywhere he went, and Romans is unique in that regard. And we also said, this is important, we said that we want to understand that it's God's plan in our lives, his agenda as a father, to grow us to the place where, where we receive God's word on its own terms. You know, sometimes, here's how we operate when we're young, when we're less mature spiritually, we operate like this. We look around our life, we see various issues, and then we say, I need to go to the Bible for an answer. And, and that's good and normal and natural. That's how we should be when we're young in our faith. But as we grow mature in our faith, we begin to say, God, I just want you to speak to me because I want you to talk about, to me about all the things I don't even need, know that I need to know about. Uh, that you come to me and share with me what's on your heart. And so as we grow up in our faith, God wants to mature us to the point where we receive his word on its own terms, verse by verse. And that becomes even more significant than using his word as a reference. So that's what we're doing here this spring. And we're in Romans, beginning with chapter 4 this morning, verse 1. Let me ask you this as we get started. Are you, are you a perfectionist? <laughs> I asked for a show of hands in first service. That was a mistake, so I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But do you, do you tend to be a perfectionist? You know, most of us are about some things, or at the very least, we struggle with perfectionist tendencies. I, I confess that I do sometimes. I heard someone say once, I used to be a perfectionist, but I got better, <laughs> which is kind of funny when you think about it. But sometimes the Christian faith is preached and believed as if, as if the best we can hope for is God's tolerance. In other words, we think of God as a perfectionist. And we say to ourselves, hey, because we're, we're sinners, all we can really hope for is to have God look the other way and pretend we aren't. And the result of that kind of thinking is a, a sad and a stilted faith that doesn't love God and that struggles to love others. What it produces is a lot of neurotic, um, irritated, uh, self-condemning perfectionists. Do you think of God as a perfectionist? The truth is that when we think we see perfection in this world, we only think so because we're not seeing the whole picture. I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but it's true. You heard about the small town fire department that faced a, a major fire in their school bus barn. Got big and out of control, so big that they, they had to park their truck a block away and call for help from the fire department in the next town. So they did. And the truck from the other town came screaming in lights and sirens and stunned everyone by racing right into the bus barn. And the firefighters jumped off the truck and started battling the blaze from inside the building. Heroically, they got it under control and managed to save most of the buses. People were amazed. The mayor said, that's the bravest thing I have ever seen. Your boys were amazing. How can we ever thank you enough? fire chief from the other town said, well, 
we really need to get the brakes fixed on that fire truck, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> that wasn't the way we planned it. Even when we think we see perfection, we only think so because we're not seeing everything that's really going on. What does perfection look like from God's perspective? You know, as a parent, sometimes you're tempted to look at your kids and think, my kids couldn't be any more perfect. <laughs> and there's a part of you that really means that. You, you're not being perfectionistic in that moment. You're just appreciating who they are. And from God's perspective, perfection looks like the heart of a father. And he wants to talk to us about that this morning. I invited you to turn to Romans 4. Let's begin with verse 1. We're going to move right through the book in the next 20 minutes or so, right through the chapter in the next 20 minutes or so. Here's what the scripture says. Paul's writing, he says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? Remember last week? He talked to us about the fact that the gospel proclaims a righteousness from God, not one that we generate, but that God gives. And Paul now wants to illustrate that reality. And so he appeals to somebody that all Jews knew about. They knew his story. They knew uh, about his experience with God. And that's a man named Abraham. By the way, as we're going to find out this morning towards the end of our time together, Abraham is somebody God wants you to know personally. And we'll see why. But Paul says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter, this matter of a righteousness that comes from God? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, that is, if he did things that gained God's approval and affirmation, then he had something to boast about, that is, among men, but not before God. But Paul says, what does the Scripture say? Now he's quoting Genesis 15, verse 6. He says, the Scripture says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham put his trust in what God said. Notice, he doesn't say Abraham believed in God. Sometimes we think that, that we become Christians by just believing in God. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's when that belief gets personal and specific. And for Abraham, it did. He believed what God said to him. God made him a promise, gave him an invitation, planted a vision in his life, and Abraham believed God. And as a consequence, just of that believing, the Bible says, way back in the beginning, this isn't new covenant stuff, this is all covenant stuff. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Let me challenge us. When was the last time you just took God at his word? He says, do this. You say, okay. I'm going to trust you. Or, or he says, don't do this. And you go, man, even though I think I want to or I think I should, I'm not going to just because you said so. That's all Abraham did. He believed God. And the Bible says it was credited to him as righteous. Now, Scripture repeatedly teaches us to think of Abraham as our forefather, not just of the Jews, but of all believers. And he is our father because he was the person that God started with when he began to reveal his gospel to the world. He was the first Christian, so to speak, the first person to experience a righteousness that was given to him. And in that sense, we as, as Christ followers are, are, are invited to think of Abraham as our, our father in the faith, our spiritual forefather. The Jews thought of themselves as descended from Abraham and therefore part of his story. But God says that we really become part of his story when we believe like Abraham did. 
when we take God at his word about the righteousness he wants to give them. And, and, and Paul wants the Jews to understand that being part of the covenant is personal. It's not administrative. You don't get born into it. You don't file the right paperwork like we talked about last week. No, it's a personal thing. When you believe God personally. Paul says Abraham, in so doing, would have had something to boast about if he'd somehow earned that place, but he didn't. God gave it to him. And why did God give it to him? Because, hear me, friends, God defines perfection in my life or your life as our willingness to receive from him and our willingness to believe what he says. That's perfection. You know, think of your kids as a parent you want your kids before anything and everything else to trust you and believe what you say because you know so much about life and the world that they don't yet. And you don't expect them to be perfect in every choice and decision they make. You know they're going to have to grow and learn how to make good ones. And so because of that, you define perfection in their life as that willingness to listen, to obey, to trust and believe. God does the same thing. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. What do you think he's looking for in your life? The answer is this believing. The answer is simply this willingness to receive from him and to trust what he says. That's why he's called God the Father. That's why Jesus teaches us to relate to him as Father. And to drive home that this is what God is looking for, Paul paints a picture. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, Now when a man works... His wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. He earned that. The paycheck you get is because you earned it. You did A, B, C, and in return, your employer gave you wages. However, in contrast to that, Paul says, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, and then an incredible turn of phrase, trusts the God who justifies the wicked. Wow, that's an amazing identity. The God who justifies. To the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. You know, when you and I get paid, it's because we earned it. But when you're given gifts on your birthday, you didn't earn those. And, it, and they feel different. When you get your paycheck, you go and you cash it, it's administrative. You put it in to pay your bills, you move on with your life. But when somebody gives you a gift on your birthday, that's a whole different animal. You don't say to yourself, well, it's my birthday and I deserve this, so I'm glad you met your obligations and gave this to me. You don't do that. You're like, oh, wow, thank you. Wow, you're giving me a birthday gift. And if you're very wise, you don't really expect it. You know, When you invite people over for your birthday, you're not just trying to accumulate gifts, Right? Right? No, no, no. And when they give it, it feels differently than when you get paid. Paul says salvation is like that. It's a gift that God gives. And, and, and you have a different bond with your family or your friends than your employer. And that bond is called a righteousness from God. And that bond that's created when you receive a gift, that is the definition of perfection from God's perspective. See, he's not a perfectionist. He seeks perfection. But that perfection is defined, first of all, as a relationship, and then it grows into a fathering in which he guides your heart and your mind, changes your behavior, grows you into Christ-likeness. 
Following Jesus means knowing what God seeks first, and that's that bond that comes from receiving the gift, and that our trust in him personally is perfection. Some of us get sidetracked by perfectionism, which is totally different, and it focuses us, us on ourselves. When, when we think of God as perfectionist, then we, we tend to compose what I call the, the endless self-improvement agenda. Maybe you have one of those, just a long list of things you should be doing. And, and you're constantly adding to it. Every time you see a TV show about eating better, you add to your list. Every time you, you, you hear about things you should do or be involved in, you add to that list. And the list just gets enormous and long. And pretty soon, a relationship with God becomes nothing more than increasing that self-improvement agenda, adding to that to-do list. Here's the problem with that. It focuses all your attention here. It causes you to become completely self-absorbed. All you ever think about is how you could become better. When in fact, what God wants to do in the gospel is set you free to love and serve and care for somebody else and to bless them instead and to become more aware of the goodness of God than your own struggles. That's actually the way you overcome your own struggles. God wants to liberate you from that self-improvement agenda. He'll take care of that. But the truth is, God's just not interested in improving me. He wants me to be born again, <laughs> completely transformed. Jesus invites me to take up his cross, not his to-do list. And that happens through that bond. The Holy Spirit, to put it another way, the Holy Spirit wants to change me from a person who is trying to please God to a person who pleases God just by believing him. <laughs> Yeah, that's what he wants to do in your life. You see, because when you just believe him, when you are, as we said at the beginning of this series, when you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, then that's where the joy is. This bond changes me. I remember as I got older, uh, you know, got into my late 20s, maybe my early 30s, I started to look around and go, wow, my parents did a lot for me. <laughs> You know, when you're in your teenage years, in your early 20s, generally speaking, you just tend to obsess over what they did wrong. <laughs> and you swear to yourself, you're going to be a better parent than them. There's the biggest joke in the cosmos, right? <laughs> and, and you just obsess over all the things they did wrong, what they didn't do, how they fell short, blah, 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 blah. But somewhere, as you go along and you mature, you start to go, wow, old man went to work every single day. <laughs> brought home his paycheck, clothed me, housed me, fed me, paid attention to me. Wow, how many meals has my mom cooked for me or my dad, whoever? How many times? Wow, they like carried me around and emptied my diapers like uncountable. You, you start to become aware of all that they did and, and your attitude changes and your bond towards them changes. Pretty soon you get to the point where you, you can't thank them enough. You can't possibly say enough thanks to your parents, even with all their flaws and struggles. That's how the gospel works in our lives. Paul calls God the God who justifies the wicked, meaning that God is a God of justice and moral purity, absolutely. But he is more than that. He is a God who saves and who redeems. Like we learned last week, he is a God who is just and the one who justifies. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 9. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. So to us, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus says, hey, if you want to be perfect, the way you do that is by devoting your life to the bringing of mercy to sick people. Sometimes the temptation is to make church a place where the healthy get together and congratulate each other for being healthy. But that's not God's desire. God's desire is that we would be the place that understands we're medics, nurses, doctors, spiritual helpers sent into the world on behalf of the sick who often aren't here yet but who God is seeking. Jesus put it beautifully when he told the parable of the shepherd. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and he lost one. And he didn't say cost of business. He didn't say I factored that into my overhead. He said, I got to find that one. And Jesus said he left the 99. Why? Because he didn't care about them? No, because they're safe. They're healthy. He left the 99 and went looking for the one. When we have received by faith a righteousness from God, we are liberated from ourselves and enabled to become a partner with him in seeking those lost people. But when we think of God as a perfectionist, we spend all our time building our resumes. Timothy Keller writes about his mom who throughout his teenage years kept saying to him when he was growing up things like, honey, you should join the chess club. (laughs) And Tim would say, I hate chess, mom. And she'd say, yes, but it'll look good on your college application. And she'd say, honey, you you should get involved with student government. That'll look really good on your college application. He'd say, mom, I'm not interested in that. It's not my thing. But she kept bringing this kind of stuff up on and on. And he says, Eventually, I just ended up doing all those things, even though I had no heart for any of them. And I did them half-heartedly, and I did them poorly, and I did them just to build my resume. That's what the ego is seeking to do all the time, building resumes by doing stuff half-heartedly, trying to get admission to the little clubs and cliques that we want to be a part of. Our, Our egos are desperately busy, desperately slave inducing masters. But God seeks something different. God seeks for us to just respond because we've already been given righteousness. And whenever I think of this, I think of when I was a youth pastor many years ago and we, we headed off on, actually it was the first missions trip that I led as a youth pastor. And so we took about 18 teenagers down into rural central Mexico to do street ministry, to build a house for a poor family and all this kind of stuff. And as we were getting ready for that trip, you know, I'm looking around for adults who can go and help and it's hard to take three weeks off and devote it to a missions trip. It was hard to find people. And, and so I'm praying and I'm seeking and eventually I got a couple of volunteers. Actually, they weren't so much volunteers as people that I talked into submission and dragged them along. It was Ed and Bonnie Hensley. They were realtors in their 60s. They'd never been on a missions trip in their life. And they certainly didn't feel yet a call to teenagers. But I can talk a lot. <laughs> and I talked them into this thing and so they climb, imagine this if you're over 60, being sealed into three big conversion vans for three weeks with 18 teenagers. They were. And I know they went wondering what God was doing in their lives. But what happened over those next three weeks was powerful. There had to have been half a dozen times when I walked past to see Ed or Bonnie crying because God had used them in the life of a teenager in a way they never imagined possible. 
again and again and again. And when, when we came back, they came to me multiple times just bawling and hugging. Thank you, Pastor Greg, for involving me in the mission strip. And do you know that today they're in their 90s and they're still involved with some of those teenagers? See, it's that kind of change that God seeks to give us. But it doesn't happen because we, we make a to-do list or think of him as a perfectionist and we have things we have to do. No, it happens as we, we give our hearts. So how do you move from ego-driven resume building to godly wholeheartedness? Paul writes about it, verses 6 to 8. He says, David says the same thing, that is that God works by grace and gives righteousness. When he speaks of the blessedness, that is the happiness and joy, of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, as a gift, not an obligation. And then he quotes David to make his point. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say blessed is the man who never sins because there's no such thing. It doesn't say blessed is the man whose sin remains secret, who never gets caught. That's what our world says. I'm blessed if I get away with it, if it never catches up with me. But David knows better. He says, no, that's not, that doesn't bring blessing. doesn't bring joy. Blessed are they whose sins are covered. Blessed are they who receive what God is giving, his grace, his righteousness, who receive the gift by believing. Blessed are they. You know, when I worked in the inpatient drug and alcohol ward, there would come a moment where a patient, usually in the second or third week, would finally get to the point where they would confess to the whole group something they'd resisted since the day they walked through the door, and that is, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. Even though their life was filled with the proof that that was the case, they couldn't admit it to themselves. They couldn't say it. They resisted it. And then there came that day, that moment, when they finally admitted it. And every time that happened, the whole group would rush and surround them and hug them and affirm them. There'd be tears and there'd be laughter. And wow, I am, I am a sinner who needs to be saved. And, and I can receive grace. I can receive a righteousness that comes from outside of me. God wants every one of us to know that. Otherwise, perfectionism will destroy us. On April 12, 2012, Chicago White Sox pitcher Philip Humber pitched a perfect game. He retired 27 batters in a row, no walks, no hits. Now, the record comes with a little bit of an asterisk because it was the Mariners he was pitching against, all right? But, but he scored, it was a perfect game. And, and, and it's a feat that's only been accomplished 18 times in over a hundred years of Major League Baseball history. It's an amazing feat. So rare, so hard to do. He pitched that perfect game. And yet here's the rest of the story. In November of that same year, he was cut from his team. You say, how could that happen? An article in Sports Illustrated explained why. He said, Philip Humber is a perfectionist and it's destroying him. 
Humber put it this way. He said, you know, after that game, after I pitched that perfect game, I was like, I've got to prove that was no fluke. I've got to prove that I deserved that. I want everyone to know that I earned that perfect game. So every time he took the mound, his goal was to be an absolutely perfect pitcher. He doubled the amount of time he spent in the video room. He practiced twice as long as everybody on the rest of the team. He ran more. He lifted more. He developed every imaginable grip for his pitches. And the harder he worked, the worse and worse he got. The Houston Astros picked him up towards the end of the year and gave him a shot. He went 0-8 with a 9.59 ERA and got cut again. I've just got to work harder, he said. No. It was the road to nowhere. One of the coaches remarked pointedly in the article, the only way Philip is going to get better is if he gives up this perfectionism. And in the same way, God says, hey, I want to give you righteousness apart from your earning it. That's actually how you learn to live up to it. By contrast, Robert Roberts writes about a fourth grade class where the teacher introduced a game called balloon stomp, where where the kids all had balloons tied to their ankles. And when she blew the whistle, the goal was to stomp as many balloons as possible until only one person was left with a balloon that wasn't popped. And that person is the winner. So the kids played and it was chaos. And at the end, the winner was the least popular kid in the room. The next period, the next class period was full full of special needs kids and the teacher set up to play the same game. But these kids were developmentally disabled. And so they didn't easily or quickly understand the point of the game. In fact, they misunderstood it. So when the teacher blew the whistle, somehow they had gotten the idea that they were supposed to help each other pop their balloons. And so they they formed a kind of balloon stomp (laughs) co-op where they're all helping each other. One little girl knelt down and carefully held her balloon like a holder for a field goal while the little boy next to her stomped it flat and then they both laughed. (laughs) And on and on it went. All the kids helping each other stomp their balloons until the last one was stomped and everybody cheered and hugged each other. Wow. God's gospel, God's grace is like that. It changes the game. It tells you that your balloon isn't there to protect and preserve, but to give away. And it connects you to everybody else as the objective becomes for everyone to win. See, this is why our righteousness from God is so crucial and important. It changes us. It changes me from the inside out. Perfect kids can't pull this game off. Only the special needs kids can. Only the broken ones. Perfectionists, they just can't win. So the Bible says, verse 13 of chapter 4, it was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he'd be heir of the world. Not through what they did, but through the righteousness that comes from faith. And that faith means looking past what you see in the mirror. Here's where we want to close this morning. I said at the beginning that God wants you to know a man named Abraham. Let me tell you why. Abraham's journey is one that all of us can relate to. You find the story in Genesis chapter 12 on through chapter 21, but let me just thumbnail it for you. The Bible says that God came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I have a plan for your life. I have a vision for you. I want you to be mine. I will be yours. I'm going to lead you to a land that I'm going to give to you. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a blessing to the whole world. Abraham, I have a promise for you. 
And the scripture says that Abraham was like excited. Wow, I'm somebody. I matter. I'm significant. I want that. I'm in. And he believed God's promise. He said, God, lead me. Take me where you want me to go. I'm yours. Every one of us can relate to how Abraham felt in that moment. Every one of us who has received Christ as our Savior. But very quickly, the scripture says that Abraham's expectations proved to be inaccurate. We can imagine what he expected was going to be next in his life when he made that choice to, to, to receive God's plan for his life. But, but what happened next was kind of out of left field. The Bible says that a, a great famine struck the land. And Abraham had to detour his trip to this promised land. And scripture says he had to go down to Egypt because that was the only place where there was food. It's easy to imagine Abraham going, hey, wait a minute. I didn't think this was the plan. I mean, weren't we supposed to just sail through? But this famine is forcing him to detour and it feels not right, feels wrong, feels like I didn't see this coming. And then it gets harder because when he goes down to Egypt... He becomes aware that the Pharaoh who has an appetite for collecting beautiful women has his eye on his wife. That he sees Sarah as a a beautiful woman that he wants for himself. And Abraham becomes frightened, becomes terrified of this. And he says, hey, hey, Sarah, let's pretend that you're my sister. Imagine how that felt to Sarah. Can you imagine what it felt inside of Abraham? It's hard to feel like you're a man in a moment like that. And Pharaoh took Sarah into his household. And the scripture says, God said, this is not the plan. And he intervened and he rescued Sarah from that home. And and Abraham and her were reunited and got away. I always wonder what the conversations were like after that. Wow. I always wonder how she felt. And I know how he felt. Imagine what he was thinking in the wake of that. God, this plan that you have for my life, I don't know, man, it's not turning out the way that I thought it would. And then he began to notice that this plan that he would become an exalted father of many nations, that he would have a a family that would outnumber the stars in the sky, a promise that God gave to him, it's not happening. As time goes by, Abraham and Sarah begin to realize that they're dealing with infertility. And it doesn't feel good. God comes to Abraham in the middle of that journey. He says, hey, remember that promise I made for you? Uh, I'm, still, I'm still on it. We're together in this. And Genesis chapter 15 records Abraham going, well, we don't have a son. We're dealing with infertility here. We don't have a child. How can, how can the promise come true when we don't have a child? And it's, it's beautiful, kind of a parental moment there. God says, oh, Abraham, I'm your, I'm your shield. I'm your very great reward. And Abraham's kind of like, yeah, but we don't have kids. I always think about my son Isaiah when he was a toddler. Give him a choice between having dad for the afternoon and having ice cream. He's going to pick ice cream every single time. (laughs) But son, I'm your dad. I'm with you. Yeah, give me ice cream. Abraham's feeling some of that. He says to God, hey, are we ever going to have kids? And God says, yeah, I got a plan. I got a plan. 
son coming from your own body will bring this promise to pass. And the scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But guess what happened next? Nothing. Nothing for years. Nothing for decades. Abraham and Sarah go through their 40s. They go through their 50s. They go through their 60s. And the disappointments pile up. Imagine what that felt like. Sometimes you feel like that. Abraham certainly did. And in their desperation, they came up with a shortcut. Genesis chapter 16 tells us that one day Sarah came to Abraham and said, maybe God needs some help. Let's see if we can kind of contrive a way to make this promise come true. How about this? How about you take Hagar, my handmaiden, and you have a child with her. We'll call that child our own. Then we can say, God fulfilled his promise. Think of all the pain in that contrivance. Think of all the disappointment and the discouragement that Abraham and Sarah are feeling. And they, they go into this plan and God says, no, 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 no. I gave you a promise. I'm going to bring it to pass. You're not going to contrive it. Send Hagar away. And it's a beautiful story there where God says, Hagar, Ishmael, I got you. I'm going to take care of you. I got a plan for you too. But then he comes back to Abram and Sarah. And now more years, more decades go by. Just imagine how they're feeling. And then rock bottom. The scripture says that Abraham and Sarah were moving to another part of the land and they encountered a king named Ahimelech. And he noticed that Sarah was beautiful as well and he wanted her in his household. And Abram, who I'm quite sure had said to himself a thousand times, I'll never do that again, does the exact same thing again. Pretend she's my sister in fear. I can't imagine how devastating that was to Sarah that time. I can't imagine how devastating that was to Abram. So, some of us have struggles like that. They keep coming back again and again. We learn our lesson. We think we've learned it. We've moved beyond it. And it comes back again. And we're like Abraham. And then here's where the scripture says, and here's, here's where we kind of bring this full circle. Paul, writing about Abraham in chapter 4, verse 18, says this. Hear me, friends, because we're almost done. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Despite all of his failures, despite all of his disappointments, despite all of his discouragements, despite the fact that when he looked in the mirror, he didn't like what he saw. He knew that he had fallen so far short of this calling. Despite all that, Abraham continued to believe in God's promise. His faith was a small and broken thing. I think of that father who came to Jesus with a demon-possessed son and said, can you cast it out? Jesus said, everything's possible for him who has faith. And the man says, I haven't got much. Help me in my unbelief. Jesus said, I got you, I will. Abraham's in that place. He's only got that, that tiny mustard seed of faith. 
Against all hope, in hope he believed. And the Bible says, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old by now, that Sarah's womb was dead as well. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. And those words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Against all hope, Abraham. Here's why God wants you to know Abraham, because when you look in the mirror, you've got a lot of reasons not to hope. And a lot of them are secret. And a lot of them are shameful. And a lot of them weigh a thousand pounds on your spirit. And you think to yourself, so much water under the bridge. I'm not getting any younger. This isn't going the way I thought. And you're tempted to doubt. God says, hey, look at Abraham. He felt what you're feeling. But against all hope, in hope, he believed. And that's why I credit him. I just want you to believe me. In the middle of your struggles, in the middle of your disappointments, in the middle of your discouragements, in the middle of your confusion, I just want you to believe and I'll meet you in that. Now the end of the story is beautiful. The end of Abraham's story is beautiful. Abraham, I can say this because we're adults in the room. Abraham at 100, late on a Saturday night, turned off the TV, turned to Sarah, he gave her a little wink. He said, let's go in the bedroom. Sarah laughed. Are you kidding? I can't even remember how, she said. <laughs> Menopause was a long time ago. Abraham said, I know. But God's given us a promise, honey. God's given us a promise. You and I got lots of hurts. And you and I got lots of failures. But none of them change God's promise. So in hope... Against hope, let's go in the other room. Nine months later, out pops a baby. One of the best stories in Scripture, they named him Isaac, which means laughter. Because he who laughs last, laughs best. Here's what God is saying to us. Hey, I know it's hard to believe it was for Abraham. But bring your tiny faith in hope against hope. That's all I'm asking from you. In fact, that's perfection. And I'll meet you in it. And I'll bring the promise to pass. And you will experience everything that I promised you. You will be transformed in the image of Christ. You will receive eternal life. You will receive the land that I've prepared for you. It all happens. It all happens. All we're asked to do is in hope against hope, believe. Maybe you need to do that today. Maybe you need to say like Abraham did that night. Hey, I'm going forward because I have a promise from God. I'm not going to pay attention to my struggles, my failures, and my hurts. I'm just going to pay attention to the promise he's given me. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes this morning? Would you let the Holy Spirit call your attention to Abraham in this moment? He has so many reasons not to believe. But God's promise is bigger than those reasons. And God's promise to you is bigger than those reasons. 
Maybe like Abraham, you struggle with the same sin again and again and again. God says, only believe. I'm going to bring you out of it. Maybe your heart's just exhausted. Been so many difficulties, so many struggles, so many hardships. God says, I know you're tired. But will you hope against hope? That's all I'm asking from you. That's perfection. And when you believe like that, I give you my righteousness as a gift. I call you my son, my daughter. I call you my own people. I call you my beloved. In hope against hope, just believe what I'm promising you. God wants you to know that faith is small as Abraham's. is all that he's looking for. In you. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your faithfulness and patience to Abraham. And we thank you, God, for calling our attention to him so that we can know that our faith is precious to you. Teach us to trust your word no matter what, to trust your promise, your grace, no matter what's going on around us. That we might know that bond that sets us free. We pray for that and we ask it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, friends? Yeah. Here's the the real last part of the end of the story. The Bible says that all of us who believe like Abraham are now his children. So he's up in heaven and there's more of us every time he turns around. He had no idea he would have so many offspring. That's us. And as profoundly true as that was for him, it'll be true for us. Now may the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit go with you throughout this week. Go with God, tell someone you love them, have a great afternoon.